You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, February 2nd. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. After regional news and the weather forecast, KVMR's Felton Pruitt finds out from a Nevada County couple how their lives have been changed by having Tibetan monks as house guests every year for more than a quarter century. In the California Report, an examination of different facets of a potential law that would ban homeless encampments in some locations statewide. We end with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Mari Bolaños in San Francisco. Republican state lawmakers have introduced bills that would ban homeless encampments near schools, daycare centers, parks, and libraries across California. Cap Radio's Chris Nichols has the story. Assemblyman Josh Hoover of Folsom says homelessness is the number one issue for his constituents. He says the bill he introduced to ban camps within 500 feet of schools is about ensuring public safety. This is not an anti-homelessness bill. Uh, What this is, is we need to keep our children safe. We need to make sure they can safely walk to school. They can safely play in the parks. Flojan Kofer is director of policy at the Davis-based Public Health Advocates. She says measures like these can separate unhoused people from the resources they rely on. And that really hampers our ability to provide ongoing services mental health services, health care services, um, and just even like the structures and supports that are needed when people are outside. The cities of Sacramento, Elk Grove, and Los Angeles all passed similar bans last year. Punishments under Hoover's bill would range from a $25 fine to a misdemeanor charge. San Diego area State Senator Brian Jones has introduced a similar bill. For the California Report, I'm Chris Nichols in Sacramento. The funeral for 29-year-old Tyree Nichols was held yesterday in Memphis, three weeks after he died following a beating by police. During a passionate eulogy, Reverend Al Sharpton condemned the black cops who brutalized Tyree. There's nothing more insulting and offensive to those of us that fight to open doors that you walk through those doors and act like the folks we had to fight for to get you through them doors. Sharpton and others called for accountability across the nation, an issue that's being taken on here in California by the Bay Area-based Anti-Police Terror Project and its co-founder, Kat Brooks. She joins me now. Kat, what was your initial reaction to the release of the body camera footage? Well, it's always grief first, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and then it turns pretty quickly into rage. And then I get really worried about the families that we work with, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Upwards of 50 folks across the state, uh, because every time one of these murders happens, right, it compounds their trauma. And then I worried about Black people in general, right? Like, I, I, And I, I told Black folks, I was like, you don't have to watch this. We know what happened. And the officers involved in the beating are Black. Does that change the way that you discuss the issue of police-related violence? No, all cops are blue. If you're Black, Latinx, Asian, white, it doesn't matter. Once you put on that badge, that gun, that uniform, you have willingly uh, attached yourself to a, 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 an institution that from its inception 
was created to catch, kill, and incarcerate us. So, and, and you know, James Baldwin's famous quote about if you must call a cop, try to make sure they're white, right? Because the black ones will will demolish you. And WA, black cops showing out for the white cop. This is not a new issue. This has always been problematic. And that's because the entire culture of policing is rooted in violence and anti-blackness, period. And, and it's been a little frustrating that folks are like, well, see, it's not a race thing because black folks too. It absolutely still is white supremacy in action. Can you elaborate on that last point a bit more? Yeah. So policing is born out of a white supremacist system. It was born out of child slavery. Its job then was to protect uh, profit. Uh, the economic engine of this country is race-based capitalism. We are still at the bottom of the, the, the totem pole. And their job is to protect property. We're seen at the fo- as the folks most dangerous to the property. But more importantly, we're seen as the folks that are most dangerous to the status quo. And so this happened in Tennessee roughly three years after the George Floyd protests. But we know California is not immune to this type of violence. I mean, just this month, Los Angeles police officers shot and killed four people, all separate incidents. From your perspective, does it feel like progress is being made on this front? It's a both and, right? So just, for example, despite the misinformation and disinformation uh, campaign around defund, what has lasted is that most folks, right, agree that cops should not be the lead responders to mental health crisis. Um, On the other hand, what is also true is that police killed more people in the years following the George Floyd rebellion. It's not less. And how can California lawmakers support the goals of APTP? They can continue to look at or look at more consistently ways to civilianize things that law enforcement does. Uh, they absolutely had better get behind uh, the bill that's going to be run, you know, in Sacramento around getting cops out of traffic stops. The governor and and and, and legislators can make some serious shifts in our budget, right? Law enforcement and CDCR should not have the lion's share. And what can everyday people who are maybe feeling a little helpless but want to be able to help, um, what can they do? If, if you're someone that calls the cops before you dial that number, make sure, right? Why am I calling? Is there really danger to me or, or anybody else in my vicinity? Who can I call instead? And I am, you know, and, and get behind this statewide campaign uh, to get cops at a traffic stop. That, that will dramatically decrease the number of lives we lose. That was Kat Brooks, co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project. Thanks, Kat. Thank you so much. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Healthcare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. A red panda escaped from the San Diego Zoo. Well, sort of. Red pandas are known to spend most of their time in trees, and Adira, the red panda in the zoo's Panda Canyon, is no exception. Earlier this week, she made the jump from a tree in her exhibit to another just outside of the enclosure. And in a statement to the San Diego Union-Tribune, the zoo says she spent six hours there before being coaxed back to her exhibit with a long piece of bamboo. I wonder if Mei Mei, the red panda in Turning Red, would have made it out. You never know, oh my, oh my, oh my, I never know. 
And that's the California Report for Thursday, February 2nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Turning to regional news, the Nevada Irrigation District reported this afternoon on Ubinet.com that recent storms have delivered a hefty amount of snow to the NID snow courses that provide water to its customers. NID said the amount of snow water equivalent was the third highest ever recorded for a February snow survey. During the survey, which actually was conducted between January 25th and January 27th, NID found the average water content in the snowpack among the district's five high-elevation snowcourses was 36.9 inches. That's 184% of average. NID said its reservoir storage is also well above average. Its nine reservoirs are storing almost 231,000 acre-feet of water. That's 85% of capacity and 120% of average. NID measured January's total precipitation at 21.8 inches, which is 156% of average. Although conditions are favorable, it's too early to tell if they're enough to break the drought. If dry, warm conditions return in the months ahead, the snowpack could quickly disappear. Also from Ubinet.com, Nevada County is looking for 550 householders to apply for millions of federal grant dollars it has available to hire work crews to create defensible space. The work would be done at no cost to homeowners or renters. They would have to meet at least one of three criteria, that is, be age 65 or older, disabled, and or low income. Alex Keeble-Toll, an analyst with the Nevada County Office of Emergency Services, said that the county has room for 550 more residents to apply. Keeble-Toll said work has been completed on 27 properties, 35 parcels are awaiting work to begin, another 226 are in the application and review stage. The deadline to apply is February 28th. Jamie Jones, executive director of the Fire Safe Council of Nevada County, said that representatives of the Fire Safe Council will even come to applicants' homes to walk them through the application process. The council is the county's partner in the Defensible Space Project. The federal grants from FEMA total more than $5 million. A 25% match from the county and Fire Safe Council bring the project's value to $6.5 million. Turning to your regional forecast from the National Weather Service, a weak front is moving through our area, bringing a slight chance of showers overnight. A more significant storm is forecast for late Saturday afternoon, lasting into Sunday. It is expected to bring heavy snow and high winds to the Sierra and rain to the foothills. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley will be mostly cloudy and breezy with a slight chance of showers and a low around 40. Southeast winds could gust up to 18 miles per hour. Showers are likely Friday morning before 10. Friday's high will approach 49 degrees with south-southeast winds that could gust up to 21 miles per hour. Friday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 39. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight will be mostly cloudy with a low around 24 and south wind up to 15 miles per hour. Friday will be partly sunny and breezy with a high in the mid-30s. Southwest winds could clock in with gusts as high as 35 miles per hour. Friday night in Truckee, Tahoe will be mostly cloudy with subsiding winds and a low around 23. 
Tonight's forecast for Sacramento and Woodland is a slight chance of overnight showers with a low around 43 and south-southeast winds of up to 10 miles per hour. Friday will be breezy in the morning with showers likely before noon and a high in the mid-50s. Friday night will be mostly cloudy with a low around 43. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. It's an annual tradition that Tibetan Buddhist monks from a monastery in southern India visit Nevada County to build a sand mandala and provide teachings and blessings to the community. The monks will wrap up this year's visit to the Banner Community Guild on Saturday. KVMR's Felton Pruitt talked to the Nevada City family that houses the monks about the many ways their hospitality has been repaid over the past quarter century. We're talking with Diane Jacobson. She and her husband, Dale, are hosting the Tibetan monks from the Gaden Shartse Monastery. Diane, you guys are hosting the monks. Uh, They're coming to the Banner Community Guild just past the fairgrounds on McCourtney Road in Grass Valley on January 20th through February 4th. Now, you guys host them. You put them up at your house? Yes, we do. It all started 27 years ago when we had this call that there were some monks coming and needed a place to stay for a couple of nights. And they knew we had a a classroom on our property and could they bunk there? And we said, of course. And that became the beginning of this. And for 27 years, we've had monks and one year nuns stay with us anywhere from three days to three weeks. How many monks are staying with you this round? This time there's five monks and then the driver who used to be a monk, Losam Wanchuk, so six people. Is it pretty much the same monks, or do they change over the years, obviously, I would think? Yes, they change. It's the same house. The monks are part of this house in southern India, and so they come and stay with us. So it's basically from the same monastery. It's a house on that monastery. But I'll bet you've gotten to know uh, some of the monks very well over the years. We have. We've gotten to really become friends and close to many of them over the years, yes. Why was it that you guys thought this would be a really cool thing to do, to house monks? You know, it came to us. It didn't, wasn't something we had planned. Literally, there was a call, can you have them this night? And then it was so lovely to have these people in our house who came from a different culture and were bringing only the idea of peace and compassion and care for other people. And so then we just established with this one monastery in southern India, And part of what, when they first came to us, when they lived in Tibet before 1949, the monks in the monastery, the families would come each week, say Sunday or Monday, and they would bring food and clothing, medicines. Um, They would bring what people needed to live. And so once they had to leave Tibet and go to southern India, where they lease land, and I'm sure it was just very barren when they first got there and they had they had no money to live on and their family slowly moved down there and, and little villages became around the monastery but still they were under i would say dire straits when they first came here 25 years ago from this monastery they basically hardly had enough money to feed and clothe the people that lived in the monastery and so they somebody had said 
this would be a good idea to bring your teachings to the West. And the West loved it. And now they have money that they have schools, they have really beautiful housing, and it's all grown from this. What have you taken into your soul over the last 25, 27 years that you've gotten from the monks? Hmm. I would say that idea of true peace and compassion that they just want everyone to live and to be happy. That's a beautiful thought. That's a beautiful thing to learn if you don't already have that. I know. And you just see how much they really, I mean, because they live in our home, I hear them at four in the morning. I hear their bells going and they're they're saying their prayers. They'll be up at still at midnight, some of them reading their text and doing their work. They're very dedicated to their mission, to their life. Well, you know, it explains a little bit, too, because I've known you and Dale for a long time. And Dale, who is a local chiropractor here, he has a different way of, of, I think, approaching people than most. And now I kind of understand that you guys have gone on a spiritual—you've taken spirituality into your hearts. Yeah, and we did have it before. I mean, Dale and I have always been meditators since before we met. We actually practiced transcendental meditation, which was— more a Hindu, and this is the the Buddhists came to us. <laughs> and so it was just like really expanding our life too. Like, okay, everything comes to you for a reason and just open the doors. Um, and, you know, I, I want to say that besides the monastery coming, we've made a community with, it's called the Tibetan Association of Northern California. It's in Oakland. And We've had other people come up and stay with us from from that community. It's it's just householders living from Tibet, living in the Berkeley, Oakland area. But one year we had over 70 Tibetans come up for the weekend and they camped on our property and in the classroom and they did a cultural show and a traditional dinner for everybody. And then that night we had all these 70 Tibetan people sitting around a huge bonfire in our in our field singing their old Tibetan songs and drinking wine and just, it was, you felt like they could be home in Tibet. And then the next day they were sponsored by our community to go up skiing and they had never seen snow, many of them. And so the younger kids. And so it was just this incredible opportunity to also have these other Tibetans come to our house. But mostly it's been the monks. And then also we had the nuns come one year. We had 14 young nuns stay with us for three weeks. (laughs) So that was quite, and that was so inspiring and so um, interesting to us and, and, and opened our hearts so much that a few years later, we went to visit their nunnery in Kathmandu in Nepal. So that was really a special time. We've been talking with Diane Jacobson. She and her husband Dale are hosting the Tibetan monks from the Garden Shartse (laughs) <laughs> monastery, <laughs> and it'll all be happening at the Banner Community Guild in Grass Valley going on January 20th through February 4th. You can go and visit with the monks. For more information, you can go to sierrafriendsoftibet.net. So, uh, Diane, thanks for sharing your memories and your thoughts. Thank you so much, Felton. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, 
Observations from a Working Poet. Thank heavens it's February. Possibly not everyone's cup of tea, particularly if you are on the eastern seaboard this weekend, where temperatures are predicted to be in the minus 20s and 30s. You heard that correctly. This is apparently due to expected winds and something called the wind chill factor, which, if you come from Belize or Cambodia and never heard of it, is when the measurable temperature is one thing, but the force of a strong wind makes it feel much colder. I first heard this word wind chill when I was quite young, and we were visiting New England for Christmas. Little kids make the world up as they go along, and I had never noticed the word chill before. But living in San Francisco, I knew all about fog and cleaning the inside of the wind shield of accumulated moisture before a parent could drive us to school. We had a special grubby towel for this purpose. So I blithely assumed people were just mispronouncing what was called the wind shield factor, and that at some point it would get so cold everyone's windshields were going to explode. It was a very exciting and somewhat terrifying Christmas, I'll tell you and a chilling forecast of my lifelong tendency to believe I am right and everyone else is mistaken, poor dears. But back to February. My brother Sam was born on February 1st and is turning 60, which is ridiculous. Please wish him a happy birthday with me. I think of him as either 8 or about 35. He is probably the funniest fisk of our generation. Our sister Sarah second, me third, and our brother Peter who has a very dignified veneer, last, although his infrequent humor makes the rest of us roll on the floor laughing. We're all quite different about it, but you know how it can be with families, where you're so used to each other you can see a joke's beginning very early, like watching a tornado form from a weather balloon three days before it smashes through Kentucky. February is short as months go, but nowhere near short enough. The average human hopes it will last two weeks, because then we can get into and out of March, and then it will be spring. This is one of winter's delusions, that spring is coming. Spring is not coming. Forget it. It's going to be 27 at my house tonight, and Cape Cod is going to feel like minus 31, whether their windshields explode or not. As Baba Ramdas said, be here now. February is the month to wallow in winter. Be miserably cold and tired of gray skies and bored out of your mind. Go to bed at 6 p.m. Make 10 new kinds of soup in a valiant attempt at creativity. You don't even have to exaggerate. You can tear your hair out for real. Let dishes pile up in the sink. Read the depressing Russian novels everyone says we should read before we die. The ones featuring bleak landscapes and snowdrifts set in February. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for Thursday, February 2nd. 
The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weeknight at 6. If you missed any of our newscasts or interviews or Steve Baker's morning news updates, you can listen at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Friday for the next edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.